Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The question I'm raising here and wanting to answer, I have I had been speaking uh, in the past several weeks about where do we see the impact of Christ uh, in culture in our world? And it may be, well, the obvious answer to that is in the church. But what I want to do is say, yeah, but that is not, uh, the, the church itself has succumbed to the culture many times in which it is a part. And so the example I used was Christendom. In Christendom, you have the fusion of the church, you know, the city of God and the city of man. Sometimes that has produced great benefit that we've had, you know, technology. Actually, you can trace the development of modern medicine, hospitals. Uh, Much of modern science arises uh, out of this fusion of Christianity with, you know, the city of man, city of God. But at the same time, there has been great evil that has been attached to Christendom. Uh, genocide, you know, the, the anti-Semitism, the, uh, even the genocides in the, in the 20th century. And so my conclusion, the last time I was preached, is the, the, the light of Christianity as we had it in Christendom, that is the fusion of the city of man and the city of God, was not worth the candle. Uh, that even the church then has at times failed to be the church. So the, the question is, well, then where do we see the impact of Christ in culture? And a little bit, it's like our Sunday school lesson today. You know, where we see the impact of Christ is when we choose to do these things, when we choose to live out the principles of Christ, when we choose uh, to enact the love of Christ, it's in those places that we can see the kingdom of God. But at the same time, when we choose not to do those things, I think we we fail to see the kingdom enacted. The big picture thing, you know, the big illustration of this is the issue of slavery. Uh, that how, you know, what is the impact of Christianity upon the issue of slavery? Uh, and it's been a very uneven thing, and, uh, but I think in the history of the world that where even in Christendom, but uh, certainly where Christianity has gone, there has been the tendency for uh, slavery to be undone. But how? How did that happen? So what I want to do is look at the book of Philemon. Um, And we could, you know, we could read, I'll probably end up reading the whole book here uh, before we finished. It's just the whole book is only 25 verses. So it's one of the, it's not the shortest, but it's one of the shortest letters. And you might look at the book of Philemon and say, oh, there's no theology in this book. There's nothing, you know, it's just this personal letter from Paul to Philemon. 
about a slave named Onesimus who has apparently run away. And we're not quite sure uh, where he's run away to. But let me suggest it's probably just to Ephesus. That is that the distance is that uh, between Colossae and Ephesus uh, is such that Onesimus could have easily made his way to Ephesus. And some think that Paul was not only imprisoned in Rome, but he was imprisoned in Ephesus. And I think that makes a lot of sense. It would have been very difficult for Onesimus to make his way clear to the city of Rome. So uh, if we presume that he's imprisoned there in Ephesus and Onesimus has come to him pleading for his help, maybe, and it seems that he, we don't know of the situation, but maybe he's stolen something or maybe he's taken something. But anyway, he's run away. And he's come to Paul and asked Paul to assist him. And so Paul is writing this letter back to Philemon and back to the church uh, in Colossae. Uh, Just to get a flavor for the letter, let's read uh, verses 17 uh, down to verse 21. So if you consider me a partner... Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Uh, Paul doesn't, you know, there are several things Paul doesn't do. He doesn't, first of all, say to Onesimus, brother, just keep on running. Nor does he write back to Philemon and say, you know, this whole institution of slavery is a terrible thing and we need to undo this institution. Uh, He doesn't challenge the, I mean in a sense he undermines, he does subvert, he does undo slavery, but the way he does it is through what we might call a radical subordination. That is, Paul sends Onesimus back and tells Onesimus, go back. And as a slave, you know, think here of the story of the prodigal son. Uh, He does the same thing. He says, well, I'm going to go back to my father's house as a slave. That is, he's sending Onesimus back, you know, not as, oh, well, you know, the apostle Paul is backing me. But he's sending him back with a kind of humility and uh, telling him, uh, you know, go back and serve Onesimus. But at the same time, he's saying to Onesimus, uh, to Philemon, treat this man as if he is me. He is my very heart. He's, you know, treat him as if it is I myself that am coming to you. And of course, you know, you don't 
have to read very far to get the idea that slavery cannot exist. Now, whatever the form of slavery, the ownership of one person over another, or the power, the complete dominance involved in that, uh, is undone not through a challenge to the institution per se, but to an undermining of subverting of that institution uh, by what Paul is saying. And so what, what I'm, do, I'm saying, a, very, a kind of a weak thing here. Where do, you, where do you find the kingdom of God? Where do you find the city of God? Uh, you know, where has heaven come to earth, if we might put it that way? We could imagine, you know, we could presume for a minute, what would happen if, Anis, if, if Philemon says, no. I mean, just think of that. We don't know how Philemon received this letter. Could Philemon receive this letter from the Apostle Paul and say, well, that's good advice, but thank you, Paul. Glad for your input. I own Onesimus. He's mine. I'm going to do what I want. My business is my business. Your business is your business. You stay out of my stuff. Right? Wouldn't that be a common reaction of somebody today? I mean, think of the institution of slavery, what it meant. It was the economy. It was the oil, the gasoline, the electricity. It was the power that enabled the economy to function. It's what enabled Philemon, apparently, to be a fairly successful man. Right? He, the, the church is perhaps meeting. We think it's meeting there in the house of Philemon. He's got a big enough place and he's been enabled to have that place perhaps through the institution of slavery. And so Paul's messing with his stuff. He's getting very personal. So maybe Philemon could say no. But if he does say no, what we can be sure of, the kingdom of God, the city of God has not come to earth in that case. The love of Jesus, the love of Christ is not going to be instituted in that case. And this is, I think, the, the thing that we are, we're all faced with. Where we say yes, where we choose to do these things, and we all have the prerogative. Nobody's going to force you on this thing, and you can't be forced. But we all have the prerogative to say yes or to say no. To institute the city of God in our own lives or to not. So where do we see the impact of Christ? I mean, this is the bizarre thing. He's apparently entrusted this thing to the choices, the decisions that we make as individuals and as a group of people. And throughout history, we see that that choice can go either direction. That there are times and places where the church is just as evil as everything else. 
On the other hand, there are times and places where there have been martyrs, where people have stood up to the principalities and powers. And the city of God has become, you know, with us, that Christ with us has been instituted. So, I think that Christendom is a nice example of this potential, of this possibility. Um, this was, you know, Soren Kierkegaard is a famous uh, 19th century Christian. He lived in a Christian country. They had a Christian king. The salary of the preacher was paid by the state. And Kierkegaard said, there are no Christians in Denmark. He said, this country, these people, who all claim to be Christian, are basically on a daily basis, they're saying no to the gospel. And they're saying no to the gospel on the basis of the Christendom, on the basis of their understanding that has been given to them, that is passed down to them, that is precisely not the gospel, but it's a kind of ungospel. In his attack on Christendom, he, he uh, concludes that Dan- the Danish church is a forgery, a falsification, opposite to, to that taught in the New Testament. Now, Kierkegaard also then continues to fellowship. He continues to go to church. He continues to take communion. He sees himself more as an irritant to the church, not a reformer. That is, I think, our response to the problem of, you know, we come to a place, a church, and we say, well, these people aren't even Christian, is to continually start over. And his point is uh, that no, he's going, that there is a, a, a more of a militant attitude. And I think this is the idea that is Christianity something in which, well, we need to reestablish the institution. We need to rework, you know, the structures. We need to redo the hierarchy. Because it seems like we never get it right. And Kierkegaard's answer is no. That Christianity, and I think this was my, the, the idea in Hebrews, the city of man and the city of God are completely opposite to one another. And what we mean by the city of man is the structures, the organization, the hierarchy, the institutions, whatever you might call it, that humans make up is always going to fall short, is never going to achieve the city of God. That shouldn't shock us, right? That we're called to go outside of the city. We're called, and this is precisely what Paul is calling Philemon to do. Don't stick with, you know, he could stick with the customs, the tradition, the law. He's legally in his right. To own Onesimus and to punish Onesimus. Paul doesn't, you know, the, the appeal, the point here is not about what you can do, but about what you should do in Christ.
And I think that's what we're always called to do, that individually, and this is what Kierkegaard is calling us to, there is so much, you know, there's the focus on uh, individualism. He talks, he, he, he talks about an awakening, an inward deepening. Uh, he conceived of the church as individuals, people standing before God as he is revealed in Christ, who know themselves judged, forgiven, restored to fellowship, taken out of the world, and sent back into the world as witnesses for service. I think that this is very much, certainly we do this corporately and we need one another, but there is also this sense in which we have to choose. We have to, you know, enact. We have to do these things. Uh, and so there is a kind of, maybe there's a kind of nakedness to this whole thing. The idea that we're alone in this thing. The idea that uh, in some way there's no security, is there? There's no safety. There's no protection. I mean, that's what I've concluded. <laughs> uh, but maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. That we are completely without the security and safety that this world has to offer. And then we are precisely in the place that we are meant to be. That we can truly be the children of God. For Philemon, the security and safety would be in keeping his slaves. Right? Keeping the electricity and the gas and the, the power, keeping the energy running. Because that's really what slavery was. It was the means that enabled people to be successful, to gain security. You know, it's sort of like having a savings account. The more slaves you have, you have the more savings you have. And so Paul is really attacking uh, the economy, but necessarily so. There's a woman named Catherine Gerbner. She's written a book on, it, it's an odd book. It's called Christian Slavery. And she notes that the fusion of Christianity with colonizing, with enslaving, it produced a strangely combustible situation that I think we've seen it. We saw it blow up here in the United States. But what she tells is that the slaves, rather than, you know, we often presume that the slaves were forced into the church. But what she says is actually the opposite. That the white Protestant masters would refuse admittance, or at least in the beginning, refused admittance to the church as the slaves were slaves and if in the beginning, slavery was not racial. It wasn't black and white. There, many peoples were enslaved. But the reason Christians, you know, maybe we should put quotation marks here, were enslaving people is they were pagans. Well, we'll enslave these pagans because they're not our equals as Christians. <clears throat> And as the slaves became Christians, in spite of the effort of their masters, 
The incongruity of the faith of the masters became obvious to the slaves. All right? We saw this in the institution of slavery here. That the black slaves, the black slave preachers began saying, wait a minute, the white masters are not practicing the Christianity of the New Testament. They said to their masters what Kierkegaard said to the Christians of Denmark, there are no white slave owners. That's an oxymoron. Now you might disagree, but that was the message. And so, typical of this, there was a, a woman named Marota, an African woman, and she happens to write to the very country uh, that Kierkegaard was a part of. She writes to Denmark. And she pleads that she, the queen of Denmark, would intervene on behalf of black Christian women being beaten by white people for carrying Bibles and attending worship meetings. And of course we understand from the book of Philemon, Philemon, why the threat of what the threat of Christianity means for slavery, right? If they carry Bibles, they attend worship services. This means that they're children of God, just like the rest of us. Whoops. And of course, the, 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 the irony here is, imagine that Philemon says no to Paul, and Onesimus goes back, and, you know, pleads forgiveness, brings the letter of Paul. Who's in the right? The slave or the master? Well, I mean, that's, that's no huge brainer, right? The, the, obviously, the one who, has, who is the slave, and I think traditionally that, that is the, the case, that... Uh, the, the whole issue uh, that, that slavery is combustible. That is, that it creates the very situation in which Christians are challenged by the very economic system that they're a part of. Um, so, the, the whole integral working of the society is undone. The social hierarchy... Uh, This is the story of the Bible. This is Joseph is sold as a slave. He's a type of Christ sold into slavery. Israel is delivered into Exodus or are delivered from from slavery in in, uh, Egypt in the Exodus. And all of this is pictured as an enslavement to sin and delivery through Christ, which of course shouldn't be just spiritualized away. Christ is crucified as a slave. Who is the true Christian, the master or the slave? Um, And so Paul makes, he he makes a very simple argument here. A three-step request. He says, accept him back as a brother. Well, right there you've eliminated the slave-master relationship. Uh, He says, now you could, if you wanted to, you could send him back to me as a helper. Uh, and perhaps you will go one step further. And of course, if he sends him back, you'll free him. And what he does do is that he says, uh, 
If you then regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Uh, This is verse 17. And so here is real world reconciliation. Paul is drawing two brothers, a slave and a master, drawing them together and putting them on on an equal basis. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten, this verse 17, in my imprisonment, who formerly, and of course there's a play here on the word of Onesimus, he was useless formerly, and now he is useful to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Uh, the, the name, Onesimus, the useful one, the, uh, now that he's in Christ. Paul is, this letter is filled, it's packed with emotion. He says, I'm sending you my very heart. I wish to keep him with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment. Um, Paul is, you know, in a, you talk about a powerless situation. Uh, He's in prison. And Paul completely identifies then in prison with the slavery of Onesimus. Accept him as a brother for Paul. uh, This is all about, you know, this is a complete shift in social status. He goes from slave to brother. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you regard me, if you have any regard for me, as a partner in Christ, well then Onesimus is your partner in Christ also. And then he assumes financial responsibility. Uh, he says, I'll pay it. Whatever, whatever he owes, I, you know, charge it to my account. And then he says, now he kind of says this, uh, I'm not going to you know, point this out to you. And then he points it out to him. Uh, you owe me your very soul. You owe me your very being. You owe me your very self. I, Paul, am writing with this with my own hand. He says, I will repay it. Not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. But do it not by compulsion. And this is interesting. I'm not, I can't compel you to do this thing. We can't compel people. Do it of your own free will. And so... We might sum this up. Paul says, charge it to my account. I'm bearing this cross for Onesimus. Uh, And behind this understanding is certainly the picture of what might be done. You know, what was done to troublesome slaves. Oh, they were crucified. Onesimus could have been crucified. That would have been a great example, right? To the other slaves, not to do what Onesimus has done. That's precisely what the institution of crucifixion was all about. To keep the slaves in line. And the master that both Paul and Philemon serve has been crucified as a lowly slave. And so Paul is implicitly laying a heavy burden on Onesimus, right? Go back. 
Paul is asking Onesimus to go back and demonstrate repentance. There's a a parallel letter about the same time from Pliny uh, the elder uh, to the emperor in which he also writes a letter on behalf of a slave. It's very interesting, the, the, the similarities. Except that Pliny the elder in no way undermines the institution of slavery. This little book, Philemon, is filled with theology, not explicitly, but implicitly. For Perhaps he says, for this reason, he was separated for you for, for a while, that you would have him back forever. And so the idea of this radical subordination, we're all to be subordinate to one another. We're all to consider others honor others as better than ourselves. And I believe there is then a complete undermining of slavery, but there's also an undermining of every system of oppression between men and women, bosses and employees. You know, that that sort of economic system that we take for granted in the world has no place among Christians and has no place in the church. And where the economy of the world rules and reigns in people's lives, we do not see the kingdom of God instituted. Now Paul concludes the letter, Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And the idea, the implication may be, oh, maybe you'll even free Onesimus as a slave in order to have him back as a brother. So, Uh, accept him back as a humble but reconciled brother, send him back if you can as an assistant to me. I really wish to keep him because he was very helpful, but I'm not going to do anything without your consent. So if you want, send him back, but I'm not compelling you. And so perhaps in doing so, you will also give him his freedom. So the conclusion, what if Philemon were the only letter we had from Paul. I believe that there's almost enough gospel in the gospel or in Philemon to get the fullness of the implication of the gospel. The theological practice that we have here contains in a nugget what Paul calls his gospel. A new kind of family and social order. Uh, you know, the slave and the master system no longer uh, works. There's revolutionary mutual subordination. A new social ethic guiding all decisions. Here we have the stronger brother, you know, that Paul works out in Romans 15, taking care of the weaker brother. Uh, we have a new religious order. The dividing, you know, that he talks about in in, uh, Ephesians. That the wall of hostility that exists between classes of people. Slave and free. Jew and Gentile. Male and female. There is no privileged status. There's a new understanding of of, uh, uh, not just gender, but of male Uh, or slave, free, male, uh, uh, female, Jew, Greek. I believe there's a new psychological order, a new self-understanding. You know, think here of Hegel's master-slave dialectic. 
Ultimately, we're all our own masters and we're all our own slaves, aren't we? That we're all our own oppressors. And there is then a call to freedom. No fear where the slave was controlled by fear. You know, no, you know, love casts out all fear. We've all been slaves to the law of sin and death. In Christ, we've been reconciled into a koinonia, a fellowship. And so it's no great strain to locate an authentic kingdom, an authentic faith. Where slavery continues, where masters and slaves both claim Christ, where oppressors and oppression continue, it's no great strain to pick out the true enactor of the kingdom. Is it the slave or the master who is in the image of Christ? So Philemon can enact, we can enact the gospel through the power that we all yield in the, our own realm. Now let me conclude here that the, you know, most of the people in the early church were slaves, right? That, that's the irony of this. Onesimus is not a lone individual. Most of the early Christians were probably slaves. For the Christians, there is no enduring city. There is no enduring political structure. There is no social organization. There is no safety. We get safety, we get that sort of structure through the dispossession of others. Where we would dispossess others, whether personally or politically, I believe we fail to establish the kingdom. Where we subordinate ourselves, on the other hand, to the principle of love, we enact the kingdom. Where is the kingdom to be found? Where we enact the New Testament. Let's sing our hymn of it. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.